Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Rilston, I'm your host, I'm back today and we're recording on a quite a sunny afternoon, a Monday afternoon, after Manchester United defeated Leeds 2-0 at Ellen Road on the Sunday. And I'm joined by my two colleagues, Samuel Luckhurst and Rich Fay. Samuel, how are you? Very well, thank you Stephen, how are you? I'm not too bad, thank you very much. I'm doing quite good. I had a few drinks at the weekend while obviously you were busy at Ellen Road and Rich was at Lee and he missed out on Will Ferrell. Am I correct in saying that, Rich? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite the sort of A-lister, sort of a celebrity uh, guest list at Lee Sports Village, but it was just quite as hot a game, really. United were, were good, actually, at the 21s. They did win. I think they've won six in a row in all competitions now. So would maybe urge any listeners to get to, to Lee if they can on the weekends to watch United because these games are rarely on TV, but you might see a glimpse of a first-teamer in, in, in the years to come. Amari Forson got a hat-trick as well, so maybe one for, for fans to watch out for. Well, you missed Will Ferrell and you didn't get to spend time with him on Saturday, but you, sorry, on Sunday, but you can spend time with him now, can't you, Rich? So, yeah, well, half an hour ahead for you. Yeah, well, you're like Ron Burgundy yourself, aren't you? So, there's a lot of similarities <laughs> here. Our own anchorman on the podcast, so I'm a maybe I'm the real winner. <laughs> we'll just get straight into the analysis then, Samuel. Uh, you were at Ellen Road on Sunday. A hostile atmosphere was expected. That's exactly what we got in the game. Obviously, it was the second game in the week against Leeds in that kind of double-header fixture. I think it's fair to say it was a scrappy game. It lacked quality for large portions, but Ten Hag made multiple changes, didn't he? Rashford came at the striker into the second half. Ganacho came on, so did Lissandra Martinez. And is it a fair assessment to say the changes probably won the game in the end? They did, and the, the Martinez change, I thought, was, was very underrated in that it's, it's not so much the statistical side of how many passes he's completed. You, you can always skew a stat, but it's his presence. He, he, he lifts teammates around him, and unfortunately for Harry Maguire, he, he doesn't have that aura and he, he doesn't command that level of respect. He, he lost a lot of support from... Uh, from some players last season he's he lost a lot of support from from the fan base as well so having Martinez there uh, did did wonders for United even though of course Garnacho came on did brilliantly took his goal superbly three perfect touches uh, the, the more you look at the goal the more difficult it is he he made it look extremely easy but the three goals he scored this season have, have all been uh, superbly taken and I, I going back to the Martinez change and and not starting him, I could understand what Ten Hag was doing uh, with that element of rotation and that sure it seems will play at centre half against Barcelona and Malasia will play at left back because Martinez is suspended so it's a case of getting those two up to speed but you are still depriving yourself of not only your best defender probably but one of your best attackers because that those line breaking passes that Martinez can play uh, do wonders for accelerating United's attacks and they take opponents out of the game and they didn't have that they were too dilatory in their passing for, for probably an hour I would say uh, the two midfielders were really poor the amount of times Ten Hag was actually uh, you know, shouting or beckoning them over uh, for a quick conflap I lost count of uh, with, with Sabitzer and Fred but clearly those two did perform uh, a little bit more and did improve with Martinez on the pitch. I still can't quite understand how Fred got man of the match, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have a, a wildly contrasting opinion to uh, the co-commentator who was on duty uh, for, for Sky yesterday. And to, to, to tell the truth, I think it was difficult to see where a goal was going to come from, but Shaw was back in his optimum position. Uh, 
the, the Rashford, uh, I mean, he, it's, it's a relocation, but it's almost becoming a reinvention, him as a centre-forward. Uh, again, a, a marvellous header, well out of the reach of Melia. And again, it just underlines his, uh, his, his development, his improvement this season. I think before the World Cup, when when the season was paused, all but one of his goals came from the left wing. His last three goals have come as a centre forward. That is just a reflection of what what great form, what world class form he's in at the moment. Nobody can dispute that. It's it's career best form, and we've we've been saying that for weeks. But this the, the way they're going about it now, in that you know, it seems like he's adding a a new string to his bow on a weekly basis at the moment, and. I think that you know, that ceiling is still quite high and there's there's still a way to go there. So uh, for United, that, that bodes very, very well indeed. Rich, if I said Marcus Rashford's now scored nine headed goals in his career, how many of them do you think have come this season? Well, I did see this stat, so oh, it's probably a bad one. But really I'll well. say, <laughs> let, yeah, let's say, yeah, I'll say just for the sake of it, I don't know, Stephen. How many has he scored this season? Well, Richard, it's four. <laughs> I can inform you it's four. Four, wow. <laughs> well, Samuel did just do the Andre Arshavin at Anfield <laughs> celebration then, which yeah. uh, sort of gave us no, I, I, I went three. Well. I, I thought it was... I, oh, I did you? I thought you had the four. Uh, so I've, I've clearly... I've skipped, I've skipped one. So two against Leeds, one against West Ham. Uh, Sheriff, I think, as well, in the Europa League. Oh, Christ. Do you know I what? I, I cannot even... Even remember, yeah, yeah. I cannot even remember that. <laughs> well, anyways, Rich, wider Speaks conversation, the, the wider point, yeah, Sam just yeah. touched upon it. He, he is scoring these strikers' goals, isn't he? And he's looking prolific and, and clinical in the box, whereas in the past seasons, he's, he's probably not been up to it. So we've talked about his kind of relocation and how successful it's been, and we've talked about this ahead of the weekend. Is that the choice for the rest of the season? Could you see that happening more often? Because we've talked about Weghorst, the advantages and disadvantages of having him in the team, and... Whenever it seems Rashford gets moved to striker, United just look better at the moment, don't they? I think that's just the, the fact of it. Yeah, like you said there, I'd almost cut out that middleman of starting him elsewhere and repurposing him because he might not want to be this, this striker long-term. He might prefer playing on the left. He, We say he's better on the left, but the fact is at the moment he is so deadly through the middle. So I don't understand why you wouldn't capitalise on that really. And when he's in this form and he's got this confidence, he's going to feel he can score against anyone. And of course, the, the caveat of that before was that he tended to be at his best on the left because he likes running at defenders, cutting inside on his dominant foot. He's a great dribbler. He's direct. He's got pace as well and power. But now he's playing like a centre forward. He's scoring ugly goals. He's scoring great headers as well. But you look at the goals he scored you know, in recent weeks, there's been ones where he's just been stood in between the posts and he rarely used to do that. He is just playing as an actual number nine now and that's something that United have, have missed all season. I mean, in the first weeks of the season, there was this common theme of if United had, I think people you say if United had Ronaldo on the pitch or they had someone playing between the posts, they'd be scoring all these goals because there was great delivery into the box, but there's no one there to capitalise on it. And I think that now they've got that and for me you know Rashford is the informed play scoring all the goals why do you not play him through the middle sure he might not be the long-term answer there you, you still want to sign someone who is elite in the summer but until then this sort of bridge season as we're calling it one of transition I think until then it sort of is apt that Rashford is a short-term fix up front as well of course Ten Hag said himself though that when Martial is fit obviously he can't be relied upon he does prefer to to play him there he thinks they play their best football that should be the blueprint really going forward you have Rashford on the left you maybe have Sancho or Anthony on the right and then you've got someone else who, who plays through the middle so 
yeah, long term, I don't think Rashford is the striker, but for now, it, it seems pointless to not play him there because he's, he's playing so well and, like Sam said, scoring these goals that are a proper sort of striker goals now. It's so refreshing to see and, yeah, long may it continue. The only thing that could be improved is the celebration when he does that off his head. I mean, you should do the Shira, shouldn't you, and just hold his hand straight up. That'd be fantastic to see if Marcus Rashford did that. Um, if we look at the other goals... It'd be good if you did that at Wembley next week, wouldn't it? <laughs> I knew that was coming. I was waiting for that. Yes. If we look at the other goalscorer, Samuel <laughs> Ganacho, um, he took a bit of slack recently, Ganacho. There was a lot of talk on social media about him. He is, of course, only 18. Um, Tenag talked about him in his press conferences, kind of defended them, but said, look, he still needs to learn, he's developing, etc. So his goal was beautifully taken, as you said. Um, what have you thought of Tenog's management over him uh, with him over the last week? And patience is just going to be required with him, isn't it? Because he does feel like he has something special. Tenog's management in, in general this season has been... Uh... Uh, very good and certainly in the case of Garnacho, there was nothing wrong with it whatsoever in terms of like some people on Twitter like defending him just because he missed a, a, a couple of chances what, what Ten Hag said was right if you're playing at the level of Man United and you're missing those chances you you do deserve criticism uh, he had to take at least one of them Ten Hag said that himself as well he's not expecting him to score every chance but those two chances in the draw were were glaring and they came at a very you know very important point as well united were one nil down uh, it's the first half if, I, I felt if they got an equalizer they probably would have won the game so that's why you've got to you know, really scrutinize um those those opportunities and i think us, us members of the press deserve deserve credit as well we asked ten Hag these questions he gives these public pep talks and then these players uh improve it it happened with with anthony a couple of weeks ago uh, i'm not expecting any for goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm not expecting to, i know i'm i'm not expecting any any credit whatsoever from from the twitter uh the twitter art at all but it's it, it does at least you know Press, that's one of the purposes of press conferences. You you want to ask questions on behalf of supporters or um, something that interests yourself. And, and Garnacho was a talking point after the the Leeds game, and that press conference was held you know, at twelve o'clock the next day, so it was a quick turnaround. Um, but already Ten Hag had, had considered uh, Garnacho's performance, the fact that he came off after an hour. He said yesterday that he, he spoke to him in between the games, uh, which you'd expect him to as well, especially as Garnacho was one of the players who dropped out of the team. But the response was terrific. And as I said, the way he took his goal was was exceptional. Just every touch was perfect. It, at the time, it looked an easier chance than it was, but it really wasn't. And Melia did get a hand to it, but it was such a precisely taken goal and a lot of players would have gone for the far post but I think that wasn't quite on because uh, it might have been Ailing who was across he probably blocked the angle there uh, but there was still a, a bit of deception about the way he just you know used those snake hips of his and that that probably caught out Melio a little bit it's yeah, Melio has been culpable for a lot of goals that Leeds have conceded in the Premier League but I wouldn't have necessarily pinned that one on him and it it capped a, a, a good end to to, to an interesting week for Garnacho, he has to go through assessments like that where there are going to be uh, lows as well as the highs. He's, as you say, it is difficult to sorry, not difficult. It's um, it's easy to forget that he's that he is eighteen um, and and a teenager. And you know, I think of how 
I was at 18 and how immature anyone can be at 18, but you still do need people around you that are going to rein you in. And one of the things he does need to rein in is, is the Instagramming and some messages that looked quite cryptic at times. And that's not going to do him any favours. And, and Ten Hag is you know, going to give that sh kind of um, stuff short shrift as well. But as long as you're performing on the pitch, you, you get a pass and... Garnacho, he's, he's had a, a terrific season so far. Ten Hag only said the other day before the, the Leeds home game that I don't think he didn't think anyone at the club uh, expected him to develop as quickly as, as he has done. And as we said, as we've said many times, 2022 was an, was an annus mirabilis for him. It was remarkable all of the things he achieved in, in one calendar year. And he's it's it's been a different last few months since the world uh, since since the season resumed after the World Cup and he, he's not quite had the momentum. You, you think back to that first game against Burnley when the season restarted and I think he lost his footing when there was a good chance. He didn't really show up that evening, but when we watched him in training in Cadiz, uh, he was he was he was exceptional and you. You thought, well, I mean, we've seen it enough anyway in games, but when you see it in that intimate setting of uh, a training environment, and it, at one point it felt like David de Gea and Maxi Oyedele had him had him covered, and he just went the other way, and he still put the ball past de Gea and scored. So uh, he's he's a he's an exciting talent to watch. There's a hell of a lot more to come, and the only thing that United really need to get sorted is his is his contract. What was an eighteen year old Samuel Luckhurst up to then? What were you doing, Sammy? What were your hobbies? Uh, he was, he was, he was not focusing as much on his uh, school, on his A levels uh, ahead of ahead of university, and then he was uh, not particularly switched on at university either. So, uh, not yeah, TikToks, we all make, we all make mistakes, definitely. TikTok wasn't about no, was no, it? it was MySpace, no. and it was MySpace <laughs> in those days. Crikey. Cryptic MySpace that's, updates. That's how old I was. Cryptic yeah. MySpace. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Richard, Indeed. we talk about yeah. the midfield. It was the same midfield that played at Old Trafford last week, obviously with injuries. Fred, Sabitza and Fernandez. Obviously, Sabitza's had a few appearances now, signed for the club on deadline day. So what has been your assessment of him in the last few weeks? Because we've saw a bit more of him. I'm starting to feel like we're starting to get a bit of a handle on him now as a player. Yeah, I mean, there's the mitigation that, you know, he's, he's arrived at United at a time of midfield shortage and you know he's had to play alongside Fred in midfield and they're both players who like and are better in the sort of advanced role so there's been a bit of awkwardness at times they've both been sloppy in, in both appearances as well and you know they've done good things they've done bad things it's, it's been hard to sort of get a true impression of, of Sabitza so far but I do think that he's had a couple of glimpses of, of really good stuff I thought uh, for the Rashford goal in midweek, he played a really important pass in the build-up to that. He did the same for the Rashford goal uh, at the weekend as well, where he plays, he, he sort of drags the play forward and he he sprays the pass to Luke Shaw for, for the assist as well on that one. But, you know, there were still a few clunky moments as well. And I think in Sabitzer's case, you know, you've got to remember the mitigation that he's coming here as a January signing when United have been desperate and there weren't many options they could actually go and, and actively get. So you always need to sort of ease expectations of how good he can be if he's someone who could be suitable to the side in, in the long term as well as something that will have to be looked again at the end of the summer. Of course, there is no sort of option to make this permanent at, the, at this, this moment in time. So, you know, I think it'll be 
the real test will be when Casemiro comes back in and we can see that midfield. I'm really intrigued to see a midfield of Casemiro, Savitza and Fernandez together. The first time we have a chance of seeing that will be in the Barcelona second leg and then possibly the Carabao Cup final as well. It's going to be really interesting to see just what Ten Hag makes of them as a trio because like we say, we've got a week now, a week, just over a week um, for that to, to finally be unleashed as a prospect really and he might still think that's not quite right as, as the midfield balance but I think Sabitzer's shown enough there's there's some promise there and like I said even though he's been clunky he's looked a bit loose in possession at times you've got to remember that he is playing alongside Fred he's not playing in the role he prefers he said when he was at Leipzig that he just always has this urge to push forward to attack and to to just run at goal himself so he's probably had to rein that in a little bit and, and adopt a more defensive approach than he normally would have liked to. But I think it's encouraging and, like I said, considering the circumstance of his arrival, the circumstance of the games he's played and who he's played alongside, I think there is reason to, to be positive. He might not be the long-term answer, but if he's the short-term one, that's all that matters, really. So if there's reason to be positive with Sabitza, Rich, is there reason to be positive with a title challenge? Now, I'm not going to ask Samuel this because he shot his down uh, ahead of the weekend and he, he's quite pessimistic. I would do again. <laughs> yeah, of course. So I'm going to ask Rich for his verdict. Would you agree with, with Samuel's pessimism? Because the five points behind Arsenal, who of course have two games in hand, they still need to play Manchester City twice. Look, I'm not saying they're in it or they've got a very strong chance, but... Stranger things have happened. Would you agree with that, Rich? Well, I did send a message to uh, Liam Corliss last week saying I wonder what the odds are on United finishing above Arsenal this season because, you know, it's maybe not the biggest turnaround in points you'd, you'd expect, but uh, yeah, you've got to move yourself from the giddiness, I suppose, after wins. I think United are still best of the rest. I think there's still a real gulf in quality between them and, and the other two teams. I think United are more reliant on their sort of core of of key players as well and you know, any team would miss players like Casemiro and Martinez and, and Varane, but I think United's drop-off in quality is more extreme than, than the other two sides who are currently leading the way in the Premier League. I'd also say that you know, United have made a real good habit of grinding out gritty wins this season. There's been loads of games that you can say, well, last season they don't win that. There's, there's been countless you know, examples, and they won by the odd goal. They won by two goals, of course, at, at the weekend. But you know, if Leeds were more lethal in the first half, they could have... You've gone ahead with Somerville was, you know, maybe more up to it, and you, you question if United come back in that game sometimes. But I do feel that there's been lots of moments as well on the contrary where United have got away with it. You know, I think Fulham away, one example watching that where Fulham were all over them in the second half. United were very good to get the winning goal, but they could easily have dropped points there. West Ham at home could easily have been dropped points as well. I think there could be a couple of occasions between now and the end of the season where that does catch up to them a little bit. And, you know, we looked at these two Leeds fixtures as an easy six points. They've taken four, which is still good, but maybe Leeds and uh, maybe City and Arsenal do take six from those two games. So I think it will just catch up with United. I think they are still firm favourites to get third in, in the table. Uh, you know, you'd back them in, in lots of the big games. It'd be interesting to see how they get on against Barcelona. But for me, a title challenge isn't um, on the cards and it shouldn't be. That's unfair to label them as that because they're so early in this rebuild under Ten Hag that... You know, next season there's real reason to be optimism, optimistic for it. But this is just a, a platform of a season. It's one to build foundations and then then go ahead next season. But for me, uh, no title talk is too premature. Now Samuel's got his uh, bag packed for. Is it Wednesday? You're flying out, Samuel, from Manchester to Barcelona tomorrow. 
tomorrow. If they do put Frankie de Jong up, we've, we're at least in place to, uh, to, to speak to him, but yeah. I highly doubt that will be the case. Obviously, that game is on the Thursday night at the new camp. So what changes do you think we could expect, Samuel? Um, in the centre of defence, it seems likely that we'll have Luke Shaw and Varane, doesn't it? And obviously, we've talked about Rashford at Lems on this podcast. Going to striker, would it be time to do that on Thursday, do you think? I certainly think that they've got to consider it in terms of having uh, maybe more fluid front three there uh, to, to go up against Barcelona so bits are suspended as well so I think yeah, good th- that I think that team apart from apart from up top maybe one or two positions it, it does largely pick itself uh, I suppose there may be a case for for one Misaka to, to come in but um, I, I did think that Dallo coming off after an hour although you know Ten Hag is quite punctual in protecting players and players who've particularly players who've just come back from injury I, I did sense that maybe that was a hint that, that Dallo might start in Barcelona and, and let's let's face it as, as well as Wan-Bissaka has done recently Dallo has had a, a better season and has, uh, has has been become a better player under Ten Hag and Ten Hag I think does prefer him as a right back uh, and, and he might be better suited to, to taking on uh, Barcelona as well but other than those areas, it's it's just really a case of do you take Veghorst out of the team and, and maybe put Garnacho in? Um, or, but I, I still think that, you know, I mean, I'm prompted yesterday, uh, Ten Hag credited uh, ten, uh, sorry, Veghorst for his role in, in the first goal, saying about the run he made to the front post, and he seemed to think that accounted for Rashford being unmarked. I think that was maybe forcing it a little bit. I thought Veghorst was pretty poor by and large, even though he did do well for for Garnacho's goal and, and strangely he seemed to be more effective as a as a number 10 which I can't really see see him um, occupying that role on, on a long-term basis but it was it was innovative of, of Ten Hag to try that and I, I thought United were worse at Ellen Road than they were at Old Trafford against Leeds and the, there was a lot of self-doubt even in uh, Ten Hag's game management the, the way they shape-shifted in formation at times at one point it looked like they were 4-2-4 until he he happened upon something that he was quite, you know, quite content with, and it, it just seemed like United, when they took the emotion out of the out of the game, that's when they, the chances came. And you, uh, if you look back at the first goal, the the build up to it, it's just about being composed on the ball, being proactive, um, and everyone hitting their right cues. Whenever they tried to, you know, play up to the emotion of the occasion, I think they came unstuck. Leeds thrive thrive on that that's that's what they're all about that's what they've been about for as long as I've watched them and sometimes depending on the occasion you've you've got to either go with the emotion or or, or try and extract it from the game and Liverpool at home this season United used it to their benefit but I thought at Leeds it, it, they were never really going to get very far with it so Barcelona is very different in that it's it's obviously against the best team in, in Spain it's it's a number of levels up from Leeds it, it doesn't really you know, strike me as a as a game because it's so so early on in um, in the knockout stage of the competition that there's going to be any real soul-stirring aspect about it even though it is United going back to Barcelona which is you know everybody knows what that city is synonymous with from the United angle but I just I just see it as really a, a game that they've they've got to try and express themselves, not being not be cowed by Barcelona. Uh, certainly, when they last went to Spain and 
played Sociedad. There, there were too many changes to the team and uh, they won, but they didn't win by, by enough goals, which is why they came runners-up and they didn't really create many chances other than the Garnacha one, I don't think. I'm not sure they had another attempt on target all night and they ended it with, with Harry Maguire going up front. So I think they need to be more expansive than they were in their last Europa League game. Um, albeit they're coming up against a, a much better team and it's just just from a uh, from a, a purist perspective it's it's going to be brilliant to to watch Pedri, Gavi and, and De Jong potentially all in the same starting lineup in the flesh. It is a treat for Europa League fixture now. Barcelona are 11 points clear of Real Madrid, Rich. I would argue La Liga is not exactly the best standard it has been uh, this season, but nonetheless, still very impressive to be obviously that amount clear at the top. So what are you expecting over the two legs, really? Xavi's obviously improved them. I think they've defensively, they've made really good headway um, over the last few months. Stegen's kind of came back to form. He's one of the best goalkeepers in Europe at the moment. So I think the bootmakers have made Barcelona favourites to progress. So what do you think really over the next two legs? Because obviously we have said it's going to be a cracking game, but it is going to be very tight and, and very tough. Yeah, I mean, Barcelona are by far the best team in Spain this season, but over the last three seasons, United have lost to Seville, Villarreal and Sociedad as well. So maybe there needs to be more respect for those teams True. who are who are in the chase of pack in Spain as well. I know that often uh, Spanish sort of... Uh, people in Spain often get uh, quite offended when you say it's a two-team two league and we've seen United lose to Atletico Madrid as well, haven't we? So maybe they can cl complete this clean sweep and lose to Barcelona as well. Uh, you know, it's going to be it's gonna be tricky. It's a it's really, really tough test, but United have been, been at their best against the, the top teams this season. Like we said, they've beaten Liverpool, they've beaten Arsenal, they've beaten City, they've beaten Tottenham. So they've got to have a chance and Barcelona maybe have more of the luxury in that they can afford to go full strength with both legs because they've got that cushion in the league, whereas United don't have that that luxury. And of course, they've got a cup final as well uh, next weekend, uh, a week on Sunday, haven't they, to, to cater for as well. So I think that United will give a good account for themselves. I don't think it's going to be a, a game in which United are uh, you know, completely defeated and blown away by Barcelona, but I think it could just be a tie in which Barcelona's overall quality and the, the fact they've got so maybe more squad players available in United should should ring true. But of course, Barcelona do actually have some injuries of this of their own as well. So it might just be a case of whoever's squad depth is is able to, to cope with that better. And you know, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to say how United will approach it tactically as well because, as Samuel said, Luke Shaw centre back. Typically, I mean, was it last time United played Barcelona in the Champions League? Luke Shaw played centre back, scored an own goal um, from what I seem to remember. It was in a back um, three, yeah, the home leg. Yeah, back three. Um, you know, that's what Solskjaer would do. Ten Hag's very different to that. He can still go counter-attack football. Um, yeah, and United, we saw it against City. United played counter-attack football, but they didn't change their personnel and their formation to, to do so. And I think it'll be similar again. I think you can almost predict who the, the starting line 11 will be, but United will just have to be more wary of how they play out of possession. Uh, I think it, it's a perfect sort of opportunity to play Rashford as a false nine or something if you have to. Um, I, I don't really see the the logic in playing Veghorst against Barcelona. Uh, I think United need to have someone who's fluid through the middle, who can help with the defensive aspects of the game maybe a bit more, who can drop into the hole and can play it out wide. But I think United will will have a good go and a good chance of getting through. But yeah, Barcelona are favourites. But I think that'll suit United as well because 
to a degree, it will be somewhat of a, a free hit. No one's going to get too upset if they get knocked out of the Champions League at the playoff round by, by Barcelona. Yes, it's not what you aim to do at the start of the season, but as long as United get the top four and, and can win a trophy this season, I think it's more success. And the Europa League is just a bonus, really, on top of that. I'm sure Casemiro is going to be relishing the test anyways. He's had some fantastic games against Barcelona, hasn't he? Over the years, of course, for Madrid. If we move on now then to a bit of takeover chat, Samuel, uh, you wrote the line today that Avram and Joe Glazer are considering or looking at buying out their siblings and their shares and that sources have indicated that they might be reluctant sellers. So can you expand on that line really and just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, Avram Glazer and Joe Glazer's names are listed in the programme. They're the co-chairman. And uh, they were there when the takeover was completed in May 2005 with their brother, Brian, who initially was a lot more present at Old Trafford and at, and at United Games in the first few years. He was at the uh, the first home game of the 05-06 season against, um, goodness me, I think it was a Hungarian team. But anyway, it was a Champions League qualifier. Uh, he was at the 2007 FA Cup final. He's kind of faded into the background. It's mainly been Avram and Joel who have been... You know, involved in the day-to-day -day running of, of United. People in Tampa say that Joel's main job is looking after United, if you can call it that. I, I certainly wouldn't because he's not been in Manchester for nearly four years um, since they last played Barcelona at home. So may maybe he'll actually come next week, given that it's a, it's a Super League game, isn't it? Uh, you know, that, that just gives me chills still thinking about his, his statement in that... Um, in that email that was sent out before United withdrew 48 hours later. But they have been, and, and I, I use, you know, it's, it's not exactly a pun, but they have been more invested in the running of United than the other four siblings. But the other four siblings, uh, Brian, Edward, Kevin, Darcy, they are all on the board of directors that's listed on the Investor Relations uh, United website. I don't think Darcy uh, glazer Casfits to give her a full name. I don't think she's ever actually been to a competitive United game. She might have been to a friendly in America, but I'm pretty certain she's never been to a, a proper game. Uh, I think Edward Glazer was a, the first game of the season against Brighton. Kevin Glazer... He might have been to one, I think he's been to one United game, um, certainly been accounted for at one United game, and that was a long, long time ago. So you know, Av Avram Glazer has actually spoken a lot, for, as far as the Glazers go, in, in recent months, recent years, where he's been doorstepped a couple of times, and he's commented on United. And that's an indicator that you know that there is some interest on his part in actually um, being a part of the club still. And when that statement was announced in November, it, it you know they they left all options open. Uh, it was about getting p potentially some investment coming in. It was potentially a a, a, a straight sale. It depends. Uh, there are so many variables that can come uh, out of ahead of this uh, this soft deadline on, on Friday, uh, February the 17th. So proposals will be submitted or have to be submitted by then. It's still, um, Sir Jim Ratcliffe is still the only person who has publicly um, declared an interest in buying United, which I don't think is, is out of the ordinary. I think if anything, it's um, the, the better way to go about it is to keep things as, as private as possible, but things are always going to come out of it. Uh, Avram Glazer was in Dubai last week. He, he has got a, a cricket franchise that he owns in Dubai and they had a final on Sunday. But you don't need a, 
an atlas or, or or a globe to look to see how close Qatar is and um, there's a possibility that they would they, the Qataris will get a minority stake they cannot buy United outright because under the UEFA rules you can't have multi-ownership and Qatar is synonymous and they are the custodians of, uh, of, of Paris Saint-Germain so I, I hope that look I, I hope United don't fall into the hands of, of Qataris anyway because uh, you know I've, I've, I've you know, said about this chapter and verse written about this chapter and verse spoken about it it's it's got to be uh, owners who you know, I mean Ratcliffe on paper looks ideal but you know, we've, we've spoken about before just how unpalatable it would be uh, for two clubs in Manchester to be owned by states uh, I don't care what Manchester City fans say about it I don't you know they could say I'm compromised by my title what have you but I find it quite unedifying how their supporters just look at the pure positives of look at what they've done for that area of Manchester did you see that area of Manchester before they took over it and conveniently ignore that the brother of the owner once set a personal light in a desert uh, and there's footage of that so although I'm digressing there and it's, it's it's not a laughing matter but it's it's laughable the way certain city fans defend the regime and just see it as purely positive. You you want United to be to fall into the hands of an owner or owners who have clean hands. And, and I'm not saying that it has to be an American or it has to be an English speaker whatsoever. We've seen bad American ownership. You've, we've seen it at United. They have been bad owners. Uh, everybody is in agreement that they shouldn't be the owners of United anymore, that it's better for United to be, uh, for, for the Glazers to end their occupation. But that decision is not in the hands of United supporters, unfortunately. And it's in, you know, it's, it's a decision that will be taken by the Glazer family, uh, chiefly the two brothers who are the, co the co-chairman because they're the most, most involved in, in the running of the club. Um, so look, I, it really wouldn't surprise me what happens from here. Uh, but in terms of you know the with with the two brothers looking at buying out the other siblings that that's something that's been kicking around for a while and it's not exactly surprising given how comparatively hands on Joel and Avram are compared to the other four who you don't really see or hear anything of them. Darcy Glazer Kasovitz was once approached to. Um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers training about what was going on at United and how there was some supporter unrest back, back in 2019 and she just walked away from the interviewer she's she's literally never uttered a word uh, on, on United whereas her, her five brothers they've at least been in the stadium or they've you know, they've talked to someone who's who's an employee of Man United it was a Glazerception when you were listing off all the Glazer siblings earlier there's six of them, Samuel, in total. The Glazers. Yes. So you've got Avram, Joel, Brian, Kevin, Edward, and uh, Darcy. So they're they're the six that are on the the board of directors, and there were some other names listed on there as well. Uh, Richard Arnold's on there as he's the chief executive, of course, um, and, and a few other directors, I think. I wonder what a Thanksgiving is like around the Glazers' house. I'll never know, unfortunately. But it'd be interesting to be a, a fly on the wall. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not sure they all get together. Uh, no, yeah. you might have to pay exactly. for your food in the door as well. It might be five pound tickets, you know, ten dollars tickets or whatever uh, in that scenario. Rachel, if we just end it there with a, a quick conversation, then expanding in on that Qatar point that Samuel made. Me and you have both kind of wrote about that interest over the last week and the issues estate ownership would bring. Um, it's important that they are brought out into the light and they're addressed on it because as much as supporters want the Glazers to sell the club, and it's definitely the time for them to sell the club, it has to be to the right people, doesn't it? Yeah, United are for sale. The soul of the club shouldn't be, in my opinion. I think that you know United have always sort of held themselves, they've always looked at other clubs like that sort of disparagingly and, and thought they, they are better than it. And I know Samuel said before as well that, you know, the Glazers are, are bad owners, but they, they aren't the worst owners in world football. They're not the worst owners out there. And it can't just be changed for, for change's sake, in my opinion. But I think that something that is quite startling is that when you're on social media all day, as we are, there are there does seem to be a big demographic of supporters who do want change and who do want money of, of any sake. They want to see Mbappe in the United shirt. They want to see them playing in the Super League. They just want to see United at the top of you know the food chain in the transfer market and in terms of modern football, really. They want to, to support a team who is synonymous with success again. There is a large portion of the, the support base who, who I believe do still want that. And I guess that's the, the difficulty, isn't it? You can't choose who, who owns a football club. The fit and proper tests aren't rigorous enough they don't keep out the the people who shouldn't be in charge of football clubs and you know it's again the sort of morality of football and whenever you go into these discussions you end up getting into sort of heinous crime top trumps of saying well you can't like this and then like that and you can't have these owners when this is happening what about investment in this company that company you know it's just what a battery that deflects from the actual issue at hand and you, you know united and qatar would be really unsavory it'd be really sour and it would be you know it would taint the the name of the club for forever really it, they'd have that link and yes they've had all this good in in the past but they will have been seen as, as selling out to you know a sports washing regime so i think that there's a real passionate demographic a core sort of fan base who are who are dead against this and who will voice their their opinions but it's a sad state of modern football, really, that these things have become normalised. And like I said, there is still going to be a large proportion of the fan base who don't really see a problem with it. And of course, the issue is that when you raise these, like, like I said, it's the water battery. It's the fact that I, I wrote a piece last week and I got emails immediately into my inbox saying, you know, accusing me of racism because I didn't believe a Qatar... Qatari takeover of Manchester United was right. It's and ridiculous. The, so the, I actually want to like leak the email. Well, not leak the email, but I'm going to post the email at some point because some of the things that are, are pointed at are absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, it is it is just a sorry state, really, that there's that some people just don't see that and they just see the success of a football team as the sort of the only thing that matters in all of this. And, of course, every United fan wants United to be successful. They want United to be at the top of the food chain again. They want to be buying the best players. They want to be winning the Champions League. They want to be winning the Premier League. But I actually think there is some encouragement in the fact that United have been so badly run and they're still showing signs of progress under Ten Hag. I don't think United needs to be selling themselves out to a sports-washing regime and getting billions and billions in the bank. They've shown they can make money. Every year the revenues go up. Yes, the debt's going up, but if you just get an owner who has the right interests at heart and who wants to make United successful again, you can do that without having to sell out to, to Qatar or to, to a state. So I think there is, hopefully, you know, in my own personal opinion, some sort of better resolution out there. But... 
yeah, I think it does bring out the maybe the worst of modern football when you get into the sort of the Qatar links and, and, and possible interest in the club. It's absurd how people can write it's emails impo- like that and it, read them back and send them. It's, it's so strange. It's, it's an important. People can get into that kind of headspace. Yeah. It's an important point Rich makes there because the perception is completely skewed by social media. And I'm not I'm not saying matchgoers uh, deserve more um, you know, rights or what have you, but matchgoers would be protesting um, against something like that. They're the ones who protested against the Super League. It is easier to take an opinion where it's aligned with your culture and it is a cultural thing, but there's become... And it, I mean, we I suppose we can blame Jurgen Klopp for it inadvertently, but since Klopp came out uh, with the quotes about City and Newcastle earlier in the season, what he said was completely fair, completely legitimate. But it's allowed those clubs to say, "Ah, oh, actually, he's being racist. He he just doesn't like um, you know, clubs being owned by uh, by." Gulf states or, or something like that and it's not it's it's much more principled than that and and Klopp has shown and said things in the past that suggest that he's a principled bloke on on various matters whether it's Brexit or uh, Covid you know I, I don't think it, it really matters you take him at face value he's certainly not being racist the thought that anyone can be racist because they say it might be bad if Manchester United are bought uh, by by a Qatari firm or a, a Qatari consortium, is is just preposterous. There's I don't want United falling into the hands of Qataris because just look at look at look at what goes on there. Look at how oppressive it can be, and it's it would just be gaudy. And you look at Paris Saint Germain and whatever people say, no club should be aspiring to be like Paris Saint Germain. Yes, they've got Messi and Mbappe, Neymar, and you know they've got a little FIFA team going on and that's why they appeal to a certain demographic but for for a big portion of the fan base it's not anything like that and it shouldn't be like that it's it's more about yeah. you know, the principal nature of it and like i was talking about american owners earlier wrexham have american owners and, and a Canadian. You only have and to a look Canadian. at their interviews. Sorry, and a Canadian. You only have to. North American owners. Samuel will be getting uh, some emails. Ho- Hollywood owners. I know. <laughs> Hollywood owners. And they have the interest at heart. You you can tell that they're not being phonies. They, they're they there at the coalface. They go to games. They interact with supporters. Um, they're, they're sitting in on the phone calls about budgets and uh, salary caps and what have you. They are. They're throwing themselves into it. That's what you want from, from from an owner, and you you want them to be reasonably reasonably clean. And Ryan Reynolds has certainly not done anything uh, untoward, as far as I can think of. But I'm sure someone out there will say, "Oh, he said this in 2008 or 2006." Well, if you don't or like Deadpool, you, if, you, if you're not a fan of Deadpool, then you might you might think so. <laughs> Precisely. So yeah, the the, the whole what about Altria? I've I've got absolutely no time for and. I mean, those if if those people are of the opinion that we're being racist, they can, yeah, they they can do one really. I I could I wish I could yeah. say something a bit sterner, but I can't. No. Yeah. I I think I it think... also comes down to how people consume the club, though, doesn't it? As well, because if you don't go to games and you don't go to Old Trafford, then the only thing that maybe the takeaway will mean to you is the players United buy. It will be. That how they do in the trophies. So if if you're only consuming them by just watching the matches on TV, I'm not saying you're any less of a fan. But for some fans, their interest will only be on what happens on the pitch and 
who United are buying and if they're winning the transfer window, if they're winning the Premier League. So there's just there's so many different cogs to it all and it, it is really complicated in, in that regards to finding someone. And of course, there probably is no no sort of perfect owner because all big business will be tainted to some degree and someone somewhere is probably getting exploited and you know there's always going to be workers who are at the bottom of the food chain of all that so it is really complex but I think like Sam said we've made our own opinions clear on on where we stand on it. Well the MEN did a survey in I think it was December late December and over 1500 people answered and it was the majority of overseas fans were more uh, you know wanted a, a kind of Gulf state to come in whereas home-based supporters who live in Greater Manchester and around that area were more wanting Sir Jim Ratcliffe. So I think we've kind of saw that spill onto social media over the last few weeks, haven't we? And you can kind of see that divide bubbling under and that was reflected in those survey results. Um, but I think we'll end it there then, gents. A very good podcast, I must say, of course, with such a brilliant host. Rich, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you, Samuel, for your time. Thank you, Stephen. And a safe flight to Barcelona, Samuel. I'm sure you'll have a fantastic time. And thank you to the yes, listeners. Yes, looking forward to it. Usual. Thank you very much. There you go. And take care and head across the YouTube channel as usual. Thank you very much. Take care.